Radio Mano Papachango. Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. This is your host, Chris. This week's guest is Moshe Kasher, who's one of my favorite people, all-time favorite people. He's a comic, a writer, actor, a man of all trades here in Los Angeles. Today we, we talk about his life before he became a famous big shot, though. We talk a lot about... The travails of growing up in Oakland, um, the child of uh, two deaf parents, which uh, was interesting, to say the least, and um, some of the anger that he had as uh, as a young guy, as an adolescent particularly, that led into issues with drugs and alcohol and the police and uh, so on and so forth, the sorts of things that you can imagine uh, might befall a young, angry guy in Oakland. Anyway, uh, Moshe, I'm very happy to report, has come out of that experience or the, that set of experiences and uh, is is leading a beautiful, wonderful life. He lives with Natasha Legero. They're married, in fact. Uh, another well-known comic actor, writer here in L.A. They've done TV shows together. He's got a new show coming out soon, which he talks about in the podcast. I still don't have Wi-Fi, so I can't look these things up and, and tell you now, uh, you know, check out this link and that link. Um, so you'll have to go to my webpage and look at it. They say I'll have Wi-Fi again tomorrow, but <clears throat> who knows? I'm actually standing in my driveway recording this because I have a friend who's uh, sleeping off a long flight from the Philippines in the house right now, so I don't want to bother her. And uh, she's uh, uh, just flown in this morning and flying out later, so she's catching a nap. And so I'm out here with the birds, if you can hear them singing. It's beautiful. I love this place. Anyway, uh, yeah, Moshe Kasher, what's going on in my life? I've got the van, uh, as I reported uh, recently. Uh, Oliver at Yorks and Lanks Automotive down in Chatsworth, California. Oliver is helping me out with the van. Uh, to be more accurate, I'm helping Oliver with the van since he knows what he's doing and I don't. So I find myself standing around uh, with a beer in my hand while he does a lot of the work, which I don't know. I, I I have good karma in that sense. It seems that um, people come out of the woodwork to help me out, and, and they seem happy to have me standing around with a beer in my hand. So that's what I do. That seems to be my, my destiny, to be the guy standing around with a beer in his hand. So I try to fulfill my destiny as best I can. Anyway, Oliver's helping with the van. We've got the um, under the bed. We've got storage areas all framed in. Uh, we are buying redwood panels to do the roof in the morning. We're, we're going to, tomorrow, we're going to, uh, insulate it and put this really nice redwood paneling in there. And we're going to do, uh, I've got a hatch, a marine hatch that'll go over the bed so I can lie in the bed and watch the stars and the clouds scuttle on by. 
Uh, also, I can sort of, uh, if I've got someone sitting back there in the bed, they can stick their head out with some binoculars and we can drive through the desert like a fucking tank, tank commander. And uh, what else? I got a vent fan going in uh, this weekend or maybe next. Uh, had some problems with the delivery. What else is going on? Uh, I'm going to put in a very simple kitchen. Basically, just a, I'm going to try to find a nice old piece of wood to put down as a like a bar top, and we'll cut our sinkhole in it and have a. We've got a water pump, so we'll have the water coming in, and then I'll just have like a catch tank below it that I can just dump out the door when it gets full. And uh, what else? Uh, I think that's about it. You know, a little LED lighting, and uh, we'll be good to go. Some Got some curtains over the windows so we can, you know, have some stealth camping going on, and that's about it. And I'll be coming out into America pretty soon. I figure maybe June, hit the road, you know, do... I, I don't know if it's going to be one long trip or several shorter trips i'm not sure we'll see how that pans out but um uh i've gotten some emails from some of you suggesting guests uh people in your town that you know i've gotten a lot of emails from people inviting me to you know park in the driveway and use the shower and uh you'll show me around your town so I, i really appreciate that those are all going into a big google map that i'm putting together so if I come anywhere near you, I'll try to make a detour and come say hello. Maybe we'll do some live podcast recordings along the way. That could be fun. So if any of you out there listening to this are like, fuck yeah, dude, I work in the theater. You know, we can line it up and, you know, get a discount or whatever. I don't, doesn't need a discount if we sell tickets or whatever, whatever. If something occurs to you that sounds good, that makes sense, drop me a line. Um, and Natasha will check it out and uh, we'll add it to the the planning files. And uh, so that's about it on that front. Uh, I'm chipping away at Civilized to Death. I hope to have a finished manuscript into my editor before I head out on the road. That'll make it a lot easier for me to enjoy being on the road without having that hanging over me. Uh, And uh, yeah, that's it. I'm just chilling and uh, having fun, enjoying the spring. Uh, probably not much else to report to you at the moment. If something comes up, I'll be sure to tell you about it. I've uh, seen some interesting movies recently. I watched Almost Famous again, which I hadn't seen for years. That's a wonderful film. If you haven't seen that, definitely worth checking out. I think I mentioned recently that I'd seen um, How to Make... What is it? How to Make Money Selling Drugs or How to Be Successful Selling Drugs. It's a documentary about the drug situation in America. Uh, Again, without Wi-Fi. See, this is the problem. This is you're seeing how my brain actually works now. See, normally when I've got Wi-Fi and I'm recording this sort of thing, I would I would have stopped it when I realized that I didn't remember the name of the movie I wanted to recommend to you. I would see this is behind the scenes shit here. I would have stopped the recording. I would have quickly looked at it, Googled it, found the name of the thing, gone, moved the, the playhead back to just before I got confused, started recording again. And I would have said, Oh, I just recently saw How to Make a Million Dollars as a Drug Lord or whatever the fuck it's called. And it would have seemed like I knew the name of the movie. Whereas, in fact, I have no fucking clue. I have a clue, but not much of a clue what the movie's called. 
And here I am talking about it anyway. This is my brain in its natural wild state without the advent of technology. <sighs> yeah, it's pretty pathetic. And there's a motorcycle going by. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's it for me. That's enough of my exciting news. I will check in with you again when I have Wi-Fi and I'll sound just as smart as I used to. But those of you who have seen behind the curtain know that there's just this sad little man back here who isn't really as clued in as he pretends to be. All right. Enough revelation. Enough nudity for today. Hope you enjoy this podcast. Moshe Kasher is one of my favorite guys. He's wonderful. And um, I walked away from this conversation with that feeling that I get sometimes where you're just like, fuck, it's so cool that people open up their hearts so readily uh, sometimes and, uh, and just show you what's real, what their life is actually about, where they actually came from. And, and uh, you know, he's, it's sort of a behind-the-scenes look at Moshe and his life as well. So uh, that's it. Thanks for all your support. Uh, those of you who support through Patreon, that is very helpful. Gives me a monthly budget. I know exactly what's coming through. Those of you who buy stuff on Amazon through the website, that's fantastic. It sort of goes up and down. Never know where that's going to go, but it's always a wonderful thing. And uh, yeah, and those of you who support by telling your friends, spreading the word, reviewing the podcast on iTunes, etc. It's all helpful and all wonderful and uh, glad to be here with you. I'm going to play you out with a little ditty by Z-Trip and Latif from their record Ahead of the Curve. It's called Time. Those of you who have smoked marijuana will recognize that they're sampling uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Those of you who smoke marijuana and or dropped acid will certainly recognize that anyway it takes you to some interesting places it's very brief uh and very funky so this is time by z trip and latif hope you're having a good week wherever you are and i will catch you on the rebound
don't stand too long in the darkness. Eyes closed in the lowest position, hoping the chatter goes away soon. Pink Floyd, dark side of the moon. Fresh thoughts like the mind of a new. Born soul that's arriving in two. Life in a new environment. Fools are hiding until you come out of it now with its true prominent proof. A comet is inside of you. View. Open wide a third eye, lotus flower and two. The power in you devouring through the cowardice view. It turns hours into about a few moments. Green, purple, red, orange, and blue. Acknowledging the cosmically what you ought to be doing. Heat falls like a Sodom in June. Water to soon is obvious. You are all of this from your breath to the flowers of June. A part of the union, start a communion. Bottom at two, the top of the room. An ominous looming. Conscious who is not of a two, but all of it is looming. Travel to Pluto and back again. Back again. The acoustics in this room suck dick, I just said. Is that insulting to dicks to say things suck dick? Or to people that like sucking dick. Uh, yeah. It's a strange thing. And have you noticed how suck has become mainstream now? Like on Oh, like moms would say it? Yeah. Like, oh that sucks. This you know, this Tupperware sucks. I like the other stuff better. It's become mainstream. But I'm old enough to remember when it meant suck dick. And it was edgy. It, it was, you could say it on TV right. for sure. Yeah. I'm here with Moshe Kasher in his acoustically, um, a room with a lot of flat surfaces, but it's a beautiful room. And you have lots of rooms that have, uh, oblong surfaces. <laughs> I, I live in a teepee. Don't, don't rooms have flat surfaces? <laughs> this one's all flat Look, surfaces. I stand with standing rocks, it's, but I also have walls, man. <laughs> It sounds, I tell you what, it, I'm wearing headphones so I can actually hear this shit. It sounds like we're in a box at the bottom of the sea. Can I take a picture of your portrait? Yeah. Man. And I'll use that as the, my phone froze. What happened to my phone? Look at that. It just froze. Um, anyway, this has been really fascinating. Thanks for doing this, Moshe. This has been really, <laughs> this has been really fun. <laughs> Um, yeah, it is so tangentially speaking. It, it's tangentially. Oh, here it goes. My phone's back. I'm about to take a picture of Moshe's very heroic portrait. That is something else, man. Um, so what, what the hell's going on, Moshe? Uh, Chris. We're catching up. Life is good. Nice to see you, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm back on the podcast. You know, I, I was on Rogan's show the other day and I said to him, my fucking phone is not working. I don't know what's going on with my phone. Um, I said to him, like, I've got all these friendships in L.A. that only take place on microphones. Uh-huh. You know, like, I rarely see you when we're not either doing your show or you're doing this show or whatever. I mean, you know, what, 95% of the time you and I have hung out has been recorded in one way or another. <laughs> it's also interesting that we both have people that consider us friends that only have had relationships with us on the other end of a speaker or a headphone. That is your listener. That's the podcast world, yeah. Which is a it's pretty, a one-way friendship. And it's a beautiful thing because it's like, you know, they come up to you when you do live stuff, you know, and they like 
they know you. Yeah. you know, people always, it's kind of a cliche. They feel like they know you. And yeah. I often say, like, they do actually know you. Yeah. And they really do know you. You just don't know who the fuck they are. Right. It's different from, like, you know, being a movie star or a singer or something where you're you're playing a role or even, you know, Bruce, like I read, I heard these interviews with Bruce Springsteen recently. And it was great. I don't know if you've heard, because he had this memoir that came yeah. out. He's a musician, right? Jersey guy. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if you've heard the interviews with yeah. Terry Gross or whatever. But he says, she said something to him. They were talking about when he was really depressed. He went through a real rough period. And mm-hmm. she was like, you know, during that time, did you ever think of all the people who wish they were Bruce Springsteen? That they wish they were you? And, you know, and here you are feeling bad. And he's like, look, Terry, lots of nights I wish I was Bruce Springsteen. I wish I was that guy on <laughs> right. stage, you know. But that's what is funny about success is, and the perception of success from the outside is like, you know, it's like, you know, that, like all the, it's turtles all the way down, mm. you know, it's like, it's yeah. you all the way up, right. you know, it's like, no matter what iteration of success or best-selling writer or comedian with your own show, you're still just the same mess, mess. of humanity <laughs> that you always were, that you, and, and, and I really do think it, there's this great Bill Burr bit about when his wife would force him to go to church and he would go, why are we listening to that guy? You know? Right. Uh, no, no, we're good. We're good. Go, Why are we listening to that guy? He, he's just some guy. And his wife's like, no, it's a special guy. It's yeah. like, yeah. we're all just like some guy. Yeah. And I think right now, I do feel like the paint is peeling off the illusion of like all of the some guys of, of society, right? Mm. Like, not only do we feel like, finally, if there's one beautiful thing Donald Trump has done, it's like the, 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 illusion of dignity Mm -hmm. that surrounds the office of Mm -hmm. government the pomp and circumstance it's like we're not even pretending anymore oh it is just some guy and it sort of refers back to like what your that one-way friendship is like i do feel like the difference between being a movie star and a rock and roll star is is this access that social media podcasting has done and i feel like that artifice has also gone i i think if if my, if my, you know, silver lining uh, glasses that I'm wearing are telling me the truth that like the, the awakening of the American left and right to, for, to be honest is like realizing that we can get to all these people, like all yeah. these videos, people screaming at, at do their, your job, do your job. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's, Chaffetz. we're all realizing like, oh, they aren't there and we're here. It's like everybody's a mess of now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting idea because I, I, you know, went through the same sort of mourning grief stage that I think a lot of people did, you know, like disbelief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm still I still, you know, it's still unbelievable. But there there are positive things about this. And, and I do feel a sense of solidarity with people who voted for Trump in an attempt to change shit. I do too. You know, a rebellion, like, no, no more of this. No more fucking Clintons, no more Bushes, no more bullshit. Like, this shit has to change. Except that it's a con. Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. I mean, and you know, to to sympathize with them further, it's always, right, it's always been a con. Yeah. It's just that the con has been even more slickly wrapped, and so we could... We could con ourselves, and now it's as like, we did with Obama. A I, lot of us, exactly. At least yeah. me. 
I have three Obama t-shirts. I haven't worn any of them in seven years and 11 months, well, probably. At least, do, at least you're doing something for the cause. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thrown them away. Yeah, right. I mean, to, to some extent, I mean, I'm sure you don't want to talk only about politics because that's all anybody wants to talk about. Welcome to Tangentially Talking About Politics. Yeah. But to some extent, you know, Obama, I don't know him. Yeah. I assume he's involved in the con, too. I don't mean that he conned us. I mean, he's probably been conned, too. We've all, we're all engaged in... When, Donald Trump is a kind of outlier of, yeah. like, insanity. But yeah. you do get the impression, I get the impression, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, George Bush Sr., they all thought they were engaged in a quest to do the right thing. Well, and to some extent, they may have been. Yeah. But, you know, Obama often uses the metaphor of, of changing the course of the ocean liner. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So they've accepted the premise That's right. that things can't change radically. Right. You have to tell the voters that you're going to change things. And then comes you're going to shake it up. But comes yeah. old iceberg Trump. He's right. Like, I know a way to change the course of an ocean liner. <laughs> yeah. from, We're not talking left down. or right. Exactly. <laughs> well, there's yeah. this great sketch that my old podcasting partner, Neil Brennan, did uh, when Dave Chappelle hosted Saturday Night Live, Neil Brennan co-created the Chappelle Show, and we used uh, to do a podcast, a, a legendary podcast called The Champs together. He and I, uh, and, yeah. um, and I call it legendary. Legendary, it is though. We it were, we were, I thought we were, we were somewhat groundbreaking in our uh, sort of weird racist fetishizing. It was a podcast where we only interviewed black celebrities, Neil and I, who are both white, but uh -huh. but. Uh, you know, aficionados of <laughs> black, uh, black, black and did yeah. did the black celebrities know that that was the the motif? Ninety nine percent of them did, and they yeah. weren't creeped out by it. No, I don't think so. I think <laughs> maybe maybe they were. They didn't tell us. It, it was a good it was a good podcast for us. And anyway, they did this pod. They did this sketch on that show um, that was passed around a bit, where Dave Chappelle was at a, a election party with a bunch of white people. I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, it was great. You know, it was funny on its face, but yeah. I was talking to Neil about it. I was like, it's actually a very deep, seriously deep magic and philosophy and metaphor in that in that sketch, which is just like all these white people are looking at the election results ticking up and screaming like, this is the worst thing that has ever happened in America. And then Chris <laughs> Rock and Dave Chappelle are in the sketch and yeah. they're both looking at each other like, oh, is it now? Yeah, really. <laughs> because yeah. You know, there is something about you know, living in a society that has always felt false and phony and right. like the paint peeled a long time ago, I think for black Americans and right. a lot of people of color, uh, in a way that even those white people who are politically progressive and think of themselves as aware and awake still, you still reap the, all the benefits of pre, uh, privilege. Yeah. So you get to go like, ah, that would put some new paint on. You yeah. Know what I mean? Yeah. So that idea of like it's bullshit, but it's our bullshit. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I felt, I mean, I've felt disaffected from American culture since I was a kid. You know, I, that's why I don't have kids, honestly. It's mm -hmm. one of the main reasons, just that I don't want to be uh, plugged into this, you know, and yeah. I want to be able to, like, get out at any time. Um, but oh, wait, so you mean that it's, it's not that you, it's not the altruism of non childbearing in that I don't want to bring another innocent creature into no, it's this purely mess. selfish. It's, I don't want to be anchored by some mess. Right. I don't yeah. want someone I love. I don't want to have to choose between buying a hundred dollar pair of Air Jordans for someone I love 
you know, and, and making them suffer because I know it's bullshit and I don't want to engage it. I don't want to be that guy either yeah. way, you know? Right. And also, like, I never wanted to live my life in terms of, you know, make sure I have a steady income and a pension. And, you know, I want to be able to fucking leave and quit. And, you know, like, I always wanted that freedom. And you can't really have that freedom if you have kids. So and you were also one of these people that does leave and quit. Yeah, I've you know, left and quit a lot. <laughs> but in a good way, a lot of these people, you, you know, you see people like, I just want, to. it's like that line on when Harry met Sally, like, all we wanted to do was, you know, be able to fly off to Paris at a moment's notice or make love on the kitchen floor. And it's like, well, yeah. you know, we never went to Paris and the kitchen floor is a cold ceramic Mexican <laughs> tile. We never bothered doing that either. Yeah, yeah. I've made love on kitchen floors in Paris. Yeah. Oh, and it you. only took a moment. Yeah. I, uh, I've made love uh, using butter to <laughs> oh. have anal sex in, in Paris during a final tango. No, no. Yeah, well, that actually was a movie. While looking at an apartment. That's, that's right. Did you read about that? That like, yes, apparently that was, they didn't tell her that was going to happen. It was like a Hollywood. Holy Hollywood fuck. magic. I got my phone. Sexual assault. Again. I'm taking a picture of your po portrait. All right, that one's going to work. Um, you, Maria Shriver. That's that's who it was. Yeah, I think so. We, we were, no? I don't think so. No? Who is Maria Schreiber? Oh, no, That's Maria Schreiber. Maria Schreiber is the, the newscaster Kennedy woman. No, no, definitely was not her. <laughs> Why did I say that? God, I was sure. That was weird. No, it was it was a French actress or something. That's right. And they yeah. didn't, apparently didn't tell her yeah, they were going to do was... this weird lovemaking scene with the butter. Yeah. To get a real, I don't know, things are weird. Yeah, I have a friend uh, who's been on the podcast a couple times, Tal Ruspoli, whose parents met at a party at Roman Polanski's house. Whoa. Mother was 15, I think, and dad was 40-something. Sure, why not? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's this very interesting, uh, like, have you heard the Charles Manson series of... Um, of Children's books? Yes, that's right. They're, they're excellent. No, there's, what is the name of the podcast? There's a whole series of these Charles Manson, the, telling the story of Charles Manson. At any rate, I'll get I'll get you the name of it. But um, one of the points that they make in that in that series is that the Polanski statutory rape stuff came at a time where statutory rape was like the '70s. He, it wasn't that he was a, an outlier in doing that. It's that he was the last. That was like the last time that that was acceptable. Like he did it uh, one just, time past when societally and culturally that right. was for some strange reason an acceptable thing. Like right. you know, and, and he's he was made the example of we right. don't do that anymore. Right, right. Free Polanski, man. I don't know why. I'm Welcome <laughs> <laughs> kind of to my layer. I mean, look, I just think we, I just think age of consent laws are just a. You know they're arbitrarily just concocted. Well, and they I are. Talk about that for they now. are. Well, I, that's true. I, I mean, there's are. this wild case. You know, the mutiny on the bounty, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so the reason that happened was these miserable English sailors had been, you know, getting whipped by what Captain Bly, I think his name was. Um, horrible, horrible situation. They pull up to this South Pacific island near Tahiti somewhere. Forget the name of the island, Pitcairn Island. And, um, you know, it's like people are happy, beautiful, great food everywhere, fresh fish, fruit. So they, they've got to fix the boats and get fresh water and replenish with fruit and all that. So it takes about a month. And, you know, and these people are sexually free. They're relaxed. So the, the guys are getting laid for the first time in their lives, most of them. Mm -hmm. Beautiful Polynesian women. 
everything's wonderful. And then, you know, it's like, okay, you know, back on the boat, we're heading off to, and they're like, yeah, I don't know, man, really? Uh So they get like two days out to sea and then that's when the mutiny occurs. So they're like, fuck this dude. They don't kill the guy. They put him and the officers on an open boat and they end up rowing to Australia. Whoa. Yeah, they thought they were dead for sure, but uh-huh. they ended up rowing to Australia. They got to Australia. They went back to England. Then they, England sent a ship down. But the point is, these days, the descendants of those mutineers still live on this island. And the island is very remote and it's politically controlled by New Zealand. Mm-hmm. But it's a totally different culture, right? So at some point, someone from the island was in New Zealand and they mentioned uh, that it was a woman who mentioned that, you know, her first sexual experience was when she was 13 or something, when she first started menstruating. And it was with one of the older men on the island. And the person who heard this told the authorities and then the authorities were like, oh, my God, that's terrible. And they sent someone to investigate. New Zealand authorities. Right. And they found that on the island... This is the culture. This is the way it works. When a girl starts to menstruate, becomes a woman, she's initiated into her sexual life by one of the older men on the island. And they don't consider, men or women, don't consider it to be abuse. It's their culture. And so it's this interesting legal situation where you've got this sort of overarching cultural norm that's being applied to this separate world in which, you know, are there victims if nobody involved considers themselves to be a victim? Well, it's this idea that you fly in, it's like you fly in on a time machine and victimize them. Like, right. no, you're a victim. Yeah. I don't feel necessarily that I, no, 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 trust us. Well, let us condition you a bit. Yeah. And then... Right, I mean, it's... It's a weird... It's a ball of worms. A ball of worms? A ball of worms, yeah. <laughs> Don't open that ball of worms. cultural moray, which is, in my culture, in the island I was raised in, that your first sexual experience would be with a ball of worms. With a ball of worms. You would cut a hole in the ball of worms yeah. and sort of, you know, gyrate it, around you. It's a, it's a nice idea, actually. Actually, with my culture, Jewish culture, would be actually a ball of gold, and you would core out a bit of uh, just a dick-sized hole in the ball of gold yeah. with a little jagged edge on the end, you fuck the ball of gold, and when you take it off, you're circumcised. Congratulations, you're a man. That's called second circumcision. And a 49er. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Woo, all right. So anyway, Moshe Kasher, who I the really fuck are you? Jew. Yeah, well, I, I know who you are. You're a Jew. Oh, I've, have I never told you my long my long. No, story? no, I know your story. In fact, I've got a copy of your book. I oh, haven't you read it, but oh, I did well, buy it. So, important. you know, as an author, I know I'd rather people buy my book than read it if I have to choose. Uh-huh, sure. Um, but uh, I intend to read it. Uh, it's called Kasher in the Rye. It's your memoir of growing up in Oakland as a ruffian. As a young ruffian, yeah, the subtitle is The True Tale of a White Boy from Oakland Who Became a Drug Addict, Criminal, Mental Patient, and Then Turned 16. <laughs> so that gives you a lot of information about the book. And, and the, interestingly, we talked about this on the, the first episode that you were on. You were raised, both your parents were deaf. Both my parents were deaf, yeah. So you have the very interesting, I mean, you told some very funny story about you forgot your keys and you were knocking on the door and there's some I don't remember what it was but something you couldn't get into the house because you know there was no light flashing or something did the cops come could could be I don't know you don't have to tell it again it's it's in the archives people can consult the archives but I wanted to catch up with you because like since we talked that was a while ago you and, and Reggie Watts was here that's right yeah who I had no idea who that guy was oh cool 
So I showed up and you're like, hey, can my friend Reggie like, you know, be on the podcast too? And I'm like, who the fuck's Reggie? All right, Ryan, you got a friend named Reggie. Yeah, all right, whatever. And he's a nice guy and it was nice talking to him. But I, I had no idea who he was, so I didn't. You know, I didn't even know he was a musician or comic, and he does all this. He's, yeah. he's a really interesting guy. Um, but uh, since then, you've you've been in. Uh, well, you co-created another world, or, or not oh, another world, another period. World, another no, period. That's, uh, a different world was the show, the spinoff from the Cosby Show, and I didn't co-create that or the Cosby <laughs> Show, but I did co-create Cosby's Legacy of Sexual Assault. That's I, great. I'm one of the co-creators of that. Just you, that idea. Um, who gave Cosby all those drugs? I, you know, like I haven't heard who oh, who was the doctor. It's got to be a doctor, right? Yeah. Have you seen the clip of him on Larry King, by the way? No. Most disturbed to the listeners right now. If you want to be disturbed, uh, go ahead and Google Cosby Spanish Fly Larry King. Oh, really? Horrified. He talks about using yeah, it, man, and he talks about it way before he was like called, you know, called to the mat on what a monster he is. Hmm. So he's just talking about it, and it's like, and Larry King, you know, sycophant that he is. It's just like laughing along with him, and he's like, there was this rumor about Spanish fly, and you put just a drop of it in a woman's drink, and hello, America. That's the quote that I Hello, America. Hello, America. Like, okay, you are a fucking terrifying monster. <laughs> I didn't create that. I, you uh, didn't. Nor Another Period, which is my wife's show on... Uh, Comedy Central. But you're in it. Right? I mean, it, you're I you're the it. creepy doctor guy who I comes in a, occasionally. I am a uh, a pansexual America. Doctor Goldberg, America's first Jewish doctor, uh, <laughs> <laughs> who is pansexual. It's uh, a it's fucking hilarious it's that show. show. I Thank mean, you. it's it's not only hilarious. It's it's mind bending uh-huh. it, because it's like mixes all these genres. The first time I watched, it, I was like. What am I watching here? It's like it. It seems like it's sort of a spoof on uh, Downton Abbey. Sure, but it's also like a. I mean, like a reality show yeah. or a music video or like it's the like if the Kardashians lived at Downton Abbey. That's yeah, the easiest. <laughs> okay, way to that's, describe it. I've never seen the Kardashian show, but good for I, you. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, I produced that show and and wrote on it for many seasons, and uh, they're now. Uh, filming their third season and I'm, I'm doing some acting on it but the main thing I'm working on now is my own show uh, on Comedy Central which is uh, premieres April 18th oh. a talk show called Problematic uh, oh. which will be yeah I'm super excited about wow it. cool it's kind of like a Phil Donahue for the you've been on my podcast a bunch it's uh-huh. sort of like the logical iteration of what of the podcast but, but it's basically like a uh, comedic Phil Donahue for the internet generation. Right. So, you know, we're kind of like talking about a topic at a time, having some real conversations, kind of like what you do here, but with, right. you know, a little heightened comedy, but. Right. And are you going to have like a panel of comics or just you and the guest or how's that going to work? It'll be like a guest expert like you kind of a thing if we were talking about like, let's say polyamory. I'll do it, Moshe. Yeah. I'll do it. Thank you for inviting <laughs> oh, me to be your first guest. I'm so honored. I, I would I'm never so honored. forget about you. You're one of the best conversationalists <laughs> I know. But that's the idea is to put yeah. Like sort of conversation back into yeah. into talk, you know, not like people plugging their projects, but to have actual right. substantive conversations. And so, yeah, uh, good. Yeah, well, that's, I think that's there's definitely a market for that. I mean, well, the, the know, podcast the, market is looking for that. Exactly. It's like that Tommy Lauren, uh, Trevor Noah conversation on The Daily Show. It's like 
everybody was passing it around because everybody was like, oh my God, can you believe it? Yeah, it they, was a conversation. Two human beings talking yeah. about real shit. Yeah, yeah now yeah. it's like the dinner party conversations have been replaced by your grandfather calling a Black Lives Matter activist a snowflake on your Facebook wall. You know what I mean? It's like no one's talking. Everybody's just screaming from across like, yeah. you know, information firewalls, you know? Yeah. So I think like to the degree, I'm super excited about this show because I feel like if we succeed, it'll be through having real conversations, which is, yeah. you know what you do and what Rogan does, you know, yeah. like, I, don't, I mean, Rogan's a bit more of a, I, I don't know, a libertarian or, or mm. right-leaning thinker. He's not a right-leaning thinker, but more than me, maybe. Mm. But you know he has people on his show that he doesn't agree with. And yeah. it's like that very notion, and I'm sure you do too on your but. I don't really. No, I mean... Did you see Alex Jones on Rogan Show? Recently? I haven't listened to it yet. I want to. Man, that He's was a tough intense. But I, I watched Milo Yiannopoulos uh, on Rogan. Oh, I haven't seen that. It's good because it's like the idea that Rogan is into clearly of having people on the show that you do, that you whose ideas you find odious. Yeah, has become a. a uh, a kind of an anathema to the American left, and I, yeah. I hate that because yeah. isn't free speech and the free exchange of ideas supposed to be our thing? Right? Isn't that the thing we're supposed to fight for? Isn't that what the isn't that the beauty of the ACLU is that they are fighting for the Klansmen sure. as well as for the, the freedom of fucking speech, man? Yeah. So you know, I yeah. am excited to have real conversations, even when I don't necessarily. So you're going to have contentious guests as well. I certainly hope so. Oh, good. I, good. It, you know, I panic because I know myself. Like when the left is mad at me, uh -huh. it makes me more uncomfortable than when the right is. Right. Sure. I, I feel the same. It's like, hey, I thought you had my back. Instead, yeah. you're stabbing me. What the fuck? I had this really interesting experience with my, with my. Well, my special came out, my stand-up special. And I'm primarily a stand-up. I'm not a journalist. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a hyper-conversationalist. I'm, I'm mostly a comedian that can carry... But you're very socially engaged. I'm engaged You socially. pay a lot of attention. I do pay a lot of attention. Yeah. I try really hard to do that. But, you know, but my real skill set is comedy. Uh, but, uh, so, you know, some of my jokes, I, I'm comedy first. I'm not like, oh, let me make sure every joke is, uh, mm. you know, is kind of woke-tested and uh, Mother Jones approved, you right. know. So... My special came out, and there was this this website. Um, I won't even dignify them by telling you the name of the website, but there's this website that basically would like go, you know, churn through pop culture and find things that people had said that was problematic, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and they did this fucking like five page hit piece on my special. I mean, breaking down every single joke, you know, like this thing he said. Well, this accent that he did was racist because he shouldn't have. And I was like, why are they coming after me this hard? Yeah. Because then I would go to the stub on another comedian who's much more famous than me and much more outrageous, like much more hardcore than me, uh, open rape jokes and racist jokes. And I started to think about it. I wonder why. And it really has informed me uh, from ever since. Why did they come after me so hard? And I really do think it's because I present myself on stage as if I'm a political progressive because mm. that's how I think of myself. Whether, whether that's hypocrisy yeah. or not, that is how I... I think of myself in that way. I'm from Oakland. Yeah. I've come from two, you know, a deaf feminist activist, disability rights, deaf, disabled mother yeah. with a history of American Jewish Communist right. Party membership, and like, so I think of myself as this real <laughs> leftist. So you and should yet, know better. Exactly. And yeah. Yet I'm on stage making these dirty, vulgar yeah. jokes about yeah. fat girls, and yeah. you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm no, I'm no Socrates. I'm a, I'm a vulgar, I'm a little vulgarian. And you know? your wife's fat. <laughs> That's right. Well, she's very small. 
<laughs> but um, but uh, but I used to very much love. I loved when I was a single man. That was a particular. I I, I, lo- I loved. I was very promiscuous, but a particular uh-huh. flavor that I enjoyed was very big girls. Really, I would love doing that. It would, That's it would, good. It would send me into a kind of. Ho- Horny tailspin that I is unmatched. Tailspin? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tailspin. So I really yeah. think, and I'm down to go there too, because we should talk about my ridiculous sex life. But I, cause I'm, sure, I'm sure listeners like that too. But I really do think it's because I, I rhymed with them. I looked like them. I yeah. smelled like them. That yeah. They were like, no, fuck you for not being really above board yeah. intellectual. Oh, dude, I've given talks where people have come up to me afterwards, you know, Sex at Dawn talks, and uh, I remember this couple came up to me in New York after I gave a talk, and they're like, hey, yeah, we just want to talk to you um, because you seem to be unaware of the fact that Dan Savage is uh, our enemy. Yes, yes. As LGBT people, because mm-hmm. he said, you know, that in his, he didn't think they were bisexual men. And I'm like, dude, if you think Dan Savage is your enemy, like you've got no allies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jesus Christ. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. There is a thing that's happening. It's unbelievable. And it plays into the hands of the assholes. That's the problem. It plays into the hands of the right. All this backbiting frack. Fractious. I mean, that's, you know, talking about positive shit about Trump, that's one of the things that maybe, maybe it's so bad that people on the left are going, leave Moshe alone. We got to deal with this, you know? Yeah, it's like when Smog, the dragon, wakes up in The Hobbit, you know? It's like, well, (laughs) elves and dwarves aren't really supposed (laughs) to, we don't like each other, but there's a fucking fire-breathing dragon coming towards the island. We'll, we we'll get back to fighting each yeah, other later. I, I, listen, I do want to hate you, but yeah. right now we've got to focus on this fucking dragon in front of us. I mean, yeah, exactly. Keep like, hate alive. There's this idea in the American left right now, and I think it is going away. I think that the, the cannibalization of the American left is sort of being laid waste by the ascendance of the American right. Yeah. But there is this idea, not only do you need to do, do you need to be intellectually homogenous? But if you're not, you are the enemy. So yeah. it's that idea. It's like, are you? It's not. Are you aware that Dan Savage has said some weird things about bisexuals? It's are you not aware that Dan Savage is our enemy? And right. if you aren't aware and don't say yes, I accept that. Now, you now you're are the, the enemy, enemy as yeah, well. It's exactly. Like, cool. So we're all the enemy, and yeah. we have no ability to fight. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's changing. Yeah, it's. I hope it's changing. Although looking at history, it does seem to be a pretty. Um, it's sort of baked into the leftist perspective, you know. Yeah, that's I mean, true. if you look at even you know communism, socialism, it's like it's really hard. Yeah, for it to work because the left is so um, frac- fractured and and it's well, you know that song "Love Me, I'm a Liberal." No, Phil Ox O C H S, I believe, is the name. I'm going to look it up to make sure I'm right. But it's a it's a very powerful and impactful song. Jimmy Dore sent it to me when I was fighting with someone about this very topic, yeah. which is he is of the school of the left that is very interested in uh, parsing out the dichotomy between the left and the liberal. Uh, right. That the, 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 the left is the good and the liberal is the lazy fat of the land, rich guy that says, you know, oh, yes, yes, I, 
I love Clinton, you know, and yeah. uh, meanwhile, like, looks out his window as the, like, ICE immigration raids are coming to his neighbor. Yeah. Well, hopefully not his neighbor, because he wouldn't really live next door right. to, the, to the illegal immigrant. Right. But looks down But the maybe street. the maid. That's exactly yeah. right. So, yeah, yeah Phil Ox, O-H-C-S, love me, I'm a liberal. Now, it's a powerful song. And it's a powerful message too, which is, you know, there's an innate, there can be an innate hypocrisy in the person who calls himself a, a, a revolutionary and who does, isn't willing to do anything about it, right? But on the other hand, I'm like, let's talk about, to my friends who are hard left, I'm like, let's talk about effectiveness, just like you're talking about. Let's talk about making the left an, an overarching movement. Let's talk about moving the Democratic Party to the le- to the to the forget the left to the to the principles that matter to us rather than talk about okay i've identified you are one of the liberals and you are one of the left you're a, you're now we're just in religion again now we're just yeah. sunni and shia right you know? right and what's the fucking point yeah the thing the american politics to me looks like the harlem globetrotters and the washington generals oh, oh we're the generals yeah oh no yeah because <laughs> i mean if you look at it the republicans they say we represent big money the Democrats say we represent working people, but mm-hmm. we really don't because we need the big money. Yeah. So the Democrats are hobbled by the fact that their party is false. It's built they're on a false by premise. Yeah. And the Republicans are emboldened by evil because they're saying well, we, we never we're evil. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. But there is a counter argument, which is that we are the Washington generals. Is that what they are? Yeah. I think Senators, so. Or whatever they are. Nationals. And, and the Harlem Globetrotters only have their best man out. The truth is the numbers are on our side. Oh yeah. You I know? know, but that's but it's fake. It's like Frank Zappa said politics is the entertainment division of the military complex. Yeah, right. And the military industrial complex, right? So it's like it's a fake competition and that's why at the beginning of this conversation, you know, I said I agree with the Trump voters whose vote was uh, just no fucking more of this. Remember, what was it? Network? Remember that movie? Yeah, yeah I'm fed up and I can't take any more. Yeah. So they were they were voting for a stone to throw at the glass house, the wall of a glass house. Like, bring it down. It doesn't work. It's bullshit. It it's, hasn't worked in years. Yes, I think you're That's right. why a lot of them voted for Obama. You know, a lot of the Obama voters right. turned to Trump. That's why, because Obama was like, oh, this guy will change it, right? Yeah. He's black, he's young, he's smart, he's cool. Right. Send him in there, he'll change it. Oh, no, nothing changed. No, I don't blame Obama necessarily. Mitch McConnell should, you know, have Take a stake chair. driven yeah. through his fucking heart. But, oh, he, there's nothing there. He's yeah. come out the other end. <laughs> Clean as a whistle. It's a whistle. <laughs> covered in K- K- Kentucky coal. <laughs> covered in gold. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Gold nuggets. Um, anyway, so your, your show starts April? Are you taping yet? Or you must no, be we're taping. not taping oh, yet. Really? We're, we're getting ready and writing right now. Is it going to be, are you going to do it live or how's that going to work? No, we're taping on uh, like on Thursdays to air on Tuesdays. We're doing a, an episode a week. You're going to have the, an audience? A live studio. Live oh, studio they're involved. Audience. The audience is involved in that yeah. old school Phil Donahue TV talk way. Oh, know, okay. The, the whole audience is encouraged and welcomed and invited to speak up at any time and oh, nice. raise their hand and scream and shout. And really? Say, it's a town hall. It's, it's, it truly is a uh, uh, democratization of the television talk format. Wow. It's going to take a lot of uh, nimble town, work on yeah, your Yeah, I've got it, baby. <laughs> I was going to say right. security. Yeah. You're going to have to have some beefy security guys. No, I, 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 think, I think that... Uh, if it works, it's because America is really ready for 
a pressure valve of yeah. conversation and yeah. and uh, not that i'm gonna like change the fucking world here but i am at least attempting to get into the current which is uh, not the current as in contemporary but it, the the the, the, st- the current of the stream right now which mm. is that i can t- i can feel people desperate to talk right and it's going to gonna be other. it's going to be content driven yeah so it's going to be today we're talking about gender that's exactly not right. today. We're talking to Doctor So and So, who wrote a book. That's right? that's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. So I we started gender and then worked backwards. Right. Know? Today we're talking about you know uh, polyamory. We've got right. Chris Ryan, right. but not the right. other way around. Chris Ryan's got a book coming right. out, so we've decided. Right. Yeah. We'll talk. So it's a regular talk show that. bullshit. Yeah. yeah. He, do you know Alan Havey? No. He's a comic, stand-up comic. Um, uh, you know, he's from an older generation than you. He's in his sixties now. He's an actor as well. He's on Mad Men and uh-huh. you know, the Man in the High Castle. Lots of he was in the La- the Coen Brothers thing, Hail Caesar. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's like been around a long sure. time. He had a talk show on Comedy Central when it just started. Before it was called the mm. Comedy Channel, I sure, think. Right, and then, yeah. um, it was called um, Night After Night. Interesting. And they had an audience of one. Whoa, really? And they, That's they funny. did like he subverted the sort of late night talk show thing in lots of ways like you know the typical thing the guy the host sits behind a desk well they so he's an audience of one and he put his chair in front of the desk Uh so they he played all these things i'm like i look to these shows like dick cavett yeah you look at dick cavett and you can't believe how slow the conversation is not in a bad way and how smart yeah. Like Norman Mailer and Gay Talese. Did you ever yeah. see that one? They almost yes. get into a fist fight. Yeah. And it's like, how was this? T- I don't mean slow, like boring. I mean, like they let people have a conversation. Right. And whatever's happening on TV, look, TV is not that important, but whatever is happening on TV represents what's happening in the greater culture. And we're all moving at the fucking speed of the internet right now. And right. no one can breathe. Right. We're changing our own brain chemistry. I've just been learning about this slightly. It was very disconcerting. Yeah. It's just like we're putting all this like heavy lifting into the frontal cortex of our brains. That's like the scattershot part of our brain. And like our... I can't imagine what kids experience. I can't. Because I mean, I'm 55. I, I mean, the internet started in the 90s. I was already, what, in my 30s or something. So my brain formed before all this. But I'll be watching a movie, a good movie on TV. And yeah. I'm like... I'm missing shit. Like, I got to get my phone and check the email while I'm watching the movie. And it's like, what's wrong with my brain? You know, you got to like take take a week off every once in a while. Go to the desert. There was this great, you're talking about Burning Man, and I appreciate that. Um, (laughs) There's this great. I was out of the Salton Sea. Were you just there? Yeah. Oh, we talked about that because we have this love of campers. Oh, yeah. Chris and I like to send each other uh, camper porn. (laughs) Great deals on campers. Sprinter porn. (laughs) (laughs) Every once in a while, I get a picture from Moshe, like this great camper. Like, fuck yeah. Those are. I tell you, I would, it's like shoes for women. I think. I think you're right because it's like well, no matter what, I got my camper. I have that, and I can leave. Well, that's what I was gonna say. Is speaking of all the paint coming off of the artifice of society, like yeah. I just read this article. Uh, I'm not sure where it might have been in the Atlantic, but it was about these CEOs in Silicon Valley. Like the latest CEO uh, status symbol is, oh, I've uh, I bought myself a bunker for the end of the world right and they have this like coded language where they go um yeah i just bought a place in new zealand and then yeah. the others like p- 
pig ass CEO, Satan <laughs> cocksucking fucking, you know, I pretend to be a leftist, but I'm actually shitting on the whole world vis-a-vis -vis capitalism versus yeah. the other. Yeah. Oh, New Zealand, eh? Yeah. Are you off grid totally? Do you have a latrine for your shit removal? Are you right. getting it? It's like this gross. They fetishized And then it. there's these other CEOs who are a little bit more aware going like, there's one in particular in this article. It's just like, this is so disgusting. What we are saying essentially is we're hedging our bets because we are seeing that rather than put it poor, if you really believe that the world is at risk of coming to an end and you are yeah. a billionaire, the right quote unquote right thing stop to do, it yeah throw all your money into <laughs> stopping it not yeah. like buying a cave for the yeah. end of the world so you can sit there and play xbox until you turn 80 with yeah. some canned fucking teas <laughs> but anyway yeah. my point is i read that yeah. article and i agreed with the good boy ceo yeah but i also on the other hand was a little bit going like you know, this is, there's some parts But of I would like a camper. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should get a yeah. camper. But see, for me, a camper is just a, like, you know, a modern hunter-gatherer uh, thing. Right. You know, it's like, it's how to be a hunter-gatherer in the modern world. You can sell all your shit. Yep. You can move into your camper van and you can just, you know, follow the weather. Or, you yep. know, oh, there's some, there's some anxiety here. There's some bad shit going on. Well, just leave. You know what we should do is we should each buy a camper and register each other's camper in one another's name. So my camper's yours and your camper's mine. So then when we really leave and the, the brown shirts come looking for us, it's like a movie. They all pull up around our camper, uh -huh. come up to the side, knock on the door, and then turn Christopher Ryan, and then it's me. Who are you? I'm not, I'm just in this camper. So when they're looking for Jewish people, yeah, I'm the you're, in you're, trouble? Is you that get what the you shit end of the stick, I'll be honest. <laughs> for once. <laughs> For once, <laughs> fuck you, Irish guys. <laughs> this is all an elaborate hustle for yeah, me. Our whole re relationship has been an yeah, elaborate like, hustle for you to like sign up to the pig slip of my camper RV. swinging. Is that what that That's is? Right. I'm yeah. not sure. Just yeah. leave your keys. Don't leave your keys. Leave your vehicle in the bowl. <laughs> Take one. You ever heard of the Yes Men? Sure, yeah. Do you ever see the thing they did with the. Because you're talking about these bunkers, and it reminded me of the. They did a documentary called The Yes Men Save the World, and I think they featured this and that, where they, they had the, the executive survival suit. Uh-huh. It was like, um, and they, what the Yes Men do for people who aren't familiar, look them up. They're hilarious and very, they're like the yippies of the right. modern world. They do these, um, like, theater, the, the best thing, the, the most notorious thing was when the guy pretended to be a spokesman for DuPont mm -hmm. and went on BBC World News and apologize. It was the day that DuPont purchased, um, uh, what was the chemical company that had the Bhopal disaster in India? I remember like 20,000 oh, people know. were killed. Uh, I forget the name of the chemical company, but DuPont had just bought yeah. that company. And this guy went on and said, you know, we've just bought this company and we feel as now the owner that we owe the people of Bhopal a huge apology and we're gonna set aside $200 million to build a state of the art. Uh, hospital and we're going to treat people and we're going to buy out their property and we're going to relocate them and Whoa. it's 20 years too late but we deserve they deserve it and the the guy from BBC was like well <clears throat> isn't your stock price going to take a hit and he said well we imagine it'll take a temporary hit but you know we believe that you know coming wow. out as a socially responsible company will in the long term have a beneficial effect just like laid it wow. all out and it was all bullshit, right? What but did DuPont do? DuPont then, you know, their stock price dropped about 2%, which oh, is, you know, amazing. billions of dollars. Yeah. 
And then they came out and like, we did not, this is not, this man has nothing to do with us. You know, we would never it. give money to the people we would we never are. do we're the right thing. <laughs> exactly. We're all about short-term yeah. profit. <laughs> we are DuPont. We do not do the right thing <laughs> by our very nature. Yeah. We are in a corporate entity, you know, a super organism. But anyway, uh, they did this thing with the survival suits. And essentially, it, it's like on these commercial fisher uh, fishing boats, they have a survival suit, which is if the boat's going down, you put this thing on, you zip it up, it has flotation devices in it and food Whoa. and oxygen or whatever, and you can like float is it, in the ocean. Real. That's real. Wow. Um, but what they did was the same thing, but it's like if the end comes Got it. and you're in your uh -huh. office, you've got this suit that you can put on and they demonstrate it and it's like this big sort of like Michelin tire kind of looking thing and it's got like protein bars and it's like a big um, like a big beach ball looking thing so you can jump out your office window and you'll float down to the street level and all these people are like oh that's a great idea yeah have you seen Jim Baker the televangelist who sells the food Alex no. Jones does it as well. He's still alive, Jim Baker. It's a different Jim Baker. It's oh, not, not Jim Tammy and Tammy Faye. Faye. It's oh. a new. I think his name's Jim Baker. If you look it up, I mean, it's like it's the most evil thing you'll ever see in your life. Vic Berger, who is a really funny comedy editor, do you know who that is? Mm -hmm. He's a very funny comedy editor. He cuts the these uh, you know splices these moments together. He does all those like Trump with very awkward silences where Trump's like you know, saying a very abstract thing and then laughing and then there'll be a long silence. So anyway, he does this, these mashups of the, yeah. the Jim Baker food thing and it's, you've never seen anything so horrifyingly disgusting in your life, both physically and also metaphorically because it's basically this Christian evangelist who is selling buckets, tubs of food powder for the end of the world. Christ is coming, you know, and the world will end and you will need to feed yourself in the interim while, well, I don't know, while, while Christ deals with the ascension. I, yeah, he's here, but he's like, he hasn't gotten to Iowa yet. Yeah. And, you know, so for now, you're going to have to deal with, like, just some of that time. Have you ever heard of the harrowing of hell? Uh-uh. I just love when the great spiritual concepts of the world get mired by, like, logical detail, mm -hmm. you know? And the harrowing of hell is one of these first... It, uh, like one of the first examples of that is like so the idea is that Christ came and he's the only way to get to heaven right but there's a logical problem innate in that is that the Bible has a lot of stuff going on before Jesus comes into the story hmm. you've got heroes you know you've got Adam and Eve and Abraham and Moses and Noah and what happened to them if the only way to heaven oh, is through Christ right what and they're already the dead man they died long before Christ was alive right so, so they you you will be gratified to know that the answer, at least for some people, at least for the Catholics, was not the simple, oh, well, they, they, went to, they went to heaven because that's really, they went to heaven. Yeah. And nice people go to heaven. No, 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 no. no. We can't do, we can't do that. It's got to make sense. They went to hell. Yeah. Oh. Just, again, on a technicality. Because like, it was the only game in town at that Jesus point. Jesus is the only way to, yeah, exactly, that's right. He's heaven, heaven. heaven was empty. <laughs> so funny. Heaven is just God, like, oh, man. <laughs> Where is to, everybody? Well, I need to get laid. Have <laughs> exactly. a kid. Send him to Earth so I can create a kind of cool This is getting boring yeah. up here. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, no, they went to, they did go to hell, oh. or maybe they went to limbo. But anyway, Jesus Christ. Limbo is a great concept. The best. And purgatory. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Yeah, purgatory. Oh. So Jesus dies, uh -huh. and the first thing he does upon death, 
He goes down into hell. No, they went to hell because it's called the heroine of hell. He goes to hell, Jesus, and basically is like uh, working the velvet rope. In hell, though, he brought the velvet rope to hell like, Moses, Adam, oh. Eve, you're with me. Come on. It's like oh. going to the SPCA. That's exactly right. <laughs> There's all these innocent people. Like, and Moses <laughs> isn't like, what the fuck? I've been down here like, you know, 7,000 years. Yeah, no. This I, sucks. No, he, yeah, the truth is what really happened is that Moses already went to heaven because he's Jewish and we're the only ones that get to go. Uh, but, um, will but, I get to go if I, if I have I'm, the title to your camper? I'm, well, that's a, now that's a very interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> the finally, it's your final comeuppance. <laughs> God's like, oh, there's come a, up wow, I actually have a, a joke about that can tie in both this topic and, uh, and age of consent. Oh. Is, I don't know who tells this. It might just be a street joke, but there's this, uh funny joke about age of consent and laws and the arbitrary nature of, of such which is that this guy dies he goes to heaven mm. and you know saint peter or whoever is there and uh or no he dies and he goes to hell right and the the gates of hell guy is like yeah come on in and he's like what do you mean why am i why am i going to hell i, I was such a good guy and and he's like, you know you you say no i did all this good stuff i did charity work what about all that underage sex like, no, no, no! Every they were all eighteen. You go. Oh, I'm sorry. It was nineteen. <laughs> like basically <laughs> the complete in like concocted nature. They were all eighteen. Yeah. Sorry. No, they were. It's yeah, nineteen. It's yeah. nineteen. Anyway, um, <laughs> hell, heaven, harrowing. Eighteen-year-old. I wanted to tell you something about comedy and subversion. Speaking of the yes men, and speaking of the other earlier topic we were on. I was reading this book, I've been reading this book called This is an Uprising by Paul Engler uh, about the history of nonviolent revolution uh. and times of political unrest. And, uh, and he makes a really interesting case for why nonviolence is the right thing to do, not because it's the right thing to do. You can believe that or not, but because it is the most effective thing to do. Hmm. In that the best way for us to win this culture war is to be nonviolent, not because we think violence is wrong, you can think that or not, but because the most effective way to topple a government is to allow them to reveal their, cruel, their cruelty and absurdity. Hmm. And one of the main, most interesting chapters in the book is about this group in Yugoslavia who brought down the Milosevic re regime. And one of the biggest tactics that they use, they use a lot of different tactics, and there was a lot of complicated things that one needs to do in order to be an effective resistance movement, some of which we're doing right now, which is taking the moment of great momentum and moving it into a sort of multifaceted attack, you know? So you don't just want to do marches, you also want to do the ACLU and, and, and you know, uh, stage sit-ins, and you want to do a number of different things so that the enemy can't see you coming. But one of the things that was really interesting about this Yugoslavian group is comedy is very powerful in, mm. the, in these particular instances where you have a regime that is trying to assert itself as this kind of nightmarish, you know, uh, pseudo-fascist, you know, authoritarian, yeah. because what an authoritarian regime can't afford to have happened is they can't afford to be made to look ridiculous. Yeah. So comedy is very effective in that because yeah. when you make fun of it, like there's an example in the book where Milosevic's regime was had announced that it was going to uh, unveil this big bridge over the Danube and um, they hadn't gotten their shit together 
to build the bridge to its full majesty. And so they just put like a military pontoon across it as a like, you know, it's kind of a failure for them, but they were going to do it anyway. And so this upstart political movement, uh, movement um, created in a, in a right a nearby park, a styrofoam bridge that they put over like a stream that they were all like walking over and like collapsing off of and like this kind of stupid joke. And so the regime found out about it and they were left with a really difficult dilemma. Do we go in guns blazing and arrest a bunch of people for walking on a styrofoam bridge, thus making them look completely ridiculous? Or do they allow them to make fun of their bridge, thus making them look ridiculous? Mm -hmm. They have no good option. And, and in that way, I'm, I'm hopeful that the, uh, that the left will be able to utilize its comedic superiority. If you think about the fact that Lauren Michaels has an incredible amount of political power right now. Right. What a strange thing that is, you know? I mean, Melissa McCarthy does a Sean Spicer impression and it yeah. reverberates all the way to the Oval Office. Right. Yeah. And he tweets about it, you know, being very clear that he's bothered by it. Well, he's so transparent. I mean, at least yeah. Stalin, you know? <laughs> had some gravitas. Yeah, he had the dignity to be the evil he aspired to be. <laughs> Trump can't even do that. Yeah. In the spirit of that, I, I just um, commissioned a painting, and I, I want to show it to you. You can maybe describe it. And I'm going to send it out to the uh -huh. Internet uh, very soon. So I want all of the, I'm going to give it, I'm, uh -huh. I'm giving this away. Not that anybody's going to want it because it's one of the most repugnant things anyone's ever seen. But I just had this, this painting commissioned uh, and I'm going to give it to people to pass around. You can maybe describe wow, it. Wow, that too. is a beautiful piece of work. <laughs> We've got Kellyanne Conway. Is that, that's Kellyanne that Conway. Is indeed. Um, Pissing, crouching on top of the heads, pissing of Putin and uh, Steve, Bannon. Steve Bannon, who are jerking each other off. But with their free hands that aren't jerking each other off, they are carrying marionette puppeteers. Oh, strings. look at that! They go down to a little baby, carrying little baby Donald, who's sitting in his own shit and holding uh, what is that? Holding a, a rocket. Oh, it's a, that's little a crayon. crayon, and his nose is growing as he lies. And he's, and he's got, he's just got, oh, he's on the constitution, on a copy of the constitution. That is something else as, that you, as, as piss rains down on him from Kelly. <laughs> she, she's, I feel sorry for her. She's I, gonna, she must be having terrible nightmares. Oh, I, the person I feel sorry for is, is Spicer. More, I feel more so? than anyone. That's the guy that goes into his office at the end of the day, splashes cold water on his face and just looks at himself in the mirror. <laughs> Say, goes, what what am the I doing? fuck am I doing, man? So what, what are you doing with this painting? You well, commissioned this? Well, I, I, an, uh, an artist uh, that I know actually from Burning Man, uh, Corey uh, Latchkey, Lat I think that's how you pronounce her last name. Yeah, Corey Latchkey is a great illustrator of, mm. the, of the Portland area, and uh, I had this vi this vision of like, what's the what is the because you know there's all these reports that may or may not be true about Donald Trump oh, getting the, really the upset about oh, oh, hookers. No. That's, part, that's the piss motif. That's without question true. Yeah. Uh, no, may or may not be true also, but that Donald Trump is personally affronted by these pictures of like you know, these notions of President Bannon and Steve Bannon, him being a being puppet. Played. Oh, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. And all these, like, 
pictures that you sent or Sean King, uh, you know, kind of Black Lives Matter activist and the, one of the editors of the Daily, the New York Daily Post, whatever the non-Kushner New York one is, yeah. Uh, yeah. was sending around this illustration of Donald Trump being like puppeted by right. and say, this apparently really bothers Donald Trump. So I was like, what's yeah. the furthest iteration of that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's got to be Putin and Bannon. Each marionette stringing puppet Trump yeah. while jerking each other off as Kellyanne Conaway pisses down their, <laughs> you know, Eastern European prostitute pissed down oh. on top of a little baby. Shit diaper Trump. What a world. <laughs> what a world. This is This is political humor now. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Bill yeah. Hicks, if you're if you're listening down and getting ready to be harrowed out of hell Harrow, by the next coming of Harrow Jesus. Bill, please, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Bill Hicks. Um, the there's something about oh Kellyanne Conway. There's this tradition of the the spokesperson who sells their soul to the devil, starting with uh, who is the guy with Reagan. Um, Atwater, Lee Atwater. Yeah, right. You remember him? He yeah. was like the first one who was like, it doesn't matter. It's false. No, it doesn't matter. Just keep saying it. It'll work. He and Gingrich and these guys. But Lee Atwater on his deathbed repented. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Like I, my life has been horrible. I shouldn't have ever done any of that. What horrible. is it that drives these people, man? Power. But why? But power for what? And I, I think the, it's self-hatred. I don't get it. I mean, what's his name? Who's the guy, the little boy genius, Turd Blossom with Bush? You know what I'm talking about. The the the, the strategist. Uh, uh, talking about Turd Blossom was his nickname under Bush. I don't know. Chris. Carl Rove. Carl Rove. Yeah. I mean, Carl Rove is such a strange creature. His father was fam famously gay. Right. Out into genital piercing. He was on the cover of Genital Piercing Magazine. That's a great magazine, by it's the way. It's great. That, I, you know what that's I not? I get it for the articles. You, you know what it isn't? What? It's not fake news. <laughs> that's as real as it gets. <laughs> Murdoch bought it. Yeah, it's a Murdoch publication now. No. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I, right. I had you. I at had you on the, the hook. At least the neocons, though, again, like Stalin, at least the neocons believed in something. Yeah. You get the impression yeah. that these dudes, it's just like, I don't know. Bannon believes in something. I don't know what these other people are about. I, 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 They're all so damaged. I've got this sort of grand unified field theory of civilization, yeah. which is that you know, with some exceptions, of course, uh, certainly in the arts, there are exceptions. But in terms of politics and military and money and that kind of stuff, the people who are very successful and therefore become role models are warped, distorted, yeah. sick people. You mean the leaders of the world? Right. On every level. There, you know, like there, there have been studies showing the, the, the number, the proportion of psychopaths among, you know, extremely successful Wall Street executives uh -huh. and, you know, so forth is much higher than general population. It makes sense. Otherwise, why are you going to work 16 hour days? If you're, if you got your shit together, you make your hundred grand a year, whatever, and you kick back and you go to the Bahamas with your girlfriend or your wife or both and you have a good time. But you're, you're one not. of those people though. What? No, I'm not. No, you we both are. I'm lazy own. as shit, yeah, dude. But you are a, you are a man, as am I, who has made a decision with your life to like be at the top of the attention at the attention pyramid. No, see, that's the thing. I fell into it. I yeah. slipped and fell, and here I am. 
I, I, no, I didn't mean that as an attack. Either. No, no. It's, it's, who I, I it's a legitimate too. thing. And that's why I said in the arts, it isn't necessarily the same. Although, you know, I, I was talking to this guy yesterday and who's, you know, an actor and a comedian and all that. And I said, so what, you know, what did it for you? And he's like, well, look, when I was a kid, it was be seen and not heard. Mm-hmm. I got no attention from adults. And then one day there was a school play and I played something or other. And suddenly all these adults were looking at me and laughing and rubbing me on the head. And that's when I knew I had to be in entertainment. And that's right. it. My whole life was like, I want attention. You know, mm-hmm. I need it. That's a declaration of a certain hunger, vulnerability, need, whatever. Um, you don't think you have it? I don't. No. Why do you do a podcast? Because it. Because I. What else am I going to do? I haven't had a job since the fucking nineties. Yeah, I know. I'm. If you looked at my CV, it's like, oh, I won a porn award, and I taught hookers how to speak English, and I, you know, it's like I have no fucking skills. I wrote one book that, by pure luck, became this crazy bestseller. I uh-huh. haven't been able to get it together to finish the second book in seven years. I mean, I'm a disaster, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my the, favorite disaster. And that's man. the best thing about me. No, I, I lack ambition. If I had any ambition, I would, I mean, I would have, I'd have three books out by now. Yeah. I'd be rolling in money. I'd, you know, be on a TV show. I, you know, I, I know have, what you're saying though. There I is can't something get around about, to it. There is something about those people who are hyper ambitious, who it's like, what are you doing this for? Even in my, even in my right. field, in comedy. What's the hole like, you're trying to fill yeah. with the money, with the attention, with the pussy, with whatever it is that drives you. I remember being so grateful today that I realized I heard about this peer of mine who got, by the way, I'm a victim of my own ego as much as the next man. Mm-hmm. But I heard about this peer of mine who got this opportunity on this network to do the show. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, Oh, I wouldn't do that show. I'd rather fail than be the guy that got that show. And it was like such a, I was so grateful for yeah. that feeling. Cause I was like, that means I'm not a phony person. That means I, at least on some level, like have a thing that I'm trying to do. I care more. And are you a hundred percent sure that if you actually got the offer, you'd refuse it? I do believe no, I'm, but I'm, I'm up there. It's at a 70, 80 percent. sure. No, I mean, thing, you know, if you paid me enough, right? yeah. I mean, that's, what's funny. And that's what, what's so weird back to what we were saying about like Obama and everybody else being conned by their own con is like, yeah. I, I got a lot of, ethics and and principles that i live by but if you throw money at it the principles become harder to pay attention to that's the thing what was the ricky gervais show where the guy i don't think it was extras or maybe it was one of the later seasons of extras or did he have another show but uh, the guy became i think it may have been been extras where he he's an extra and then he gets his own show uh-huh. and it's just this horrible show with like a catchphrase that he has to do yeah, all the time yeah, and yeah. Then people are asking him to do it in public but now he's making lots of money and like the guys he used to work with all hate him and he resents and then there's this famous scene where he's hanging out at this party and he meets david bowie oh, great do you remember yeah, that totally. and bowie yeah. like does this sad little fat man yes. you know <laughs> it's so fucking great well i tell you when i started comedy i mean i don't know if this is to my credit or not but it's the truth i there, i had no notion that comedy was connected to show business like mm. I didn't even make that connection until two or three years into comedy. So you thought it was all just stand up was sealed off somehow? Well, I was just like, I'm going to an open mic. I, it didn't occur to me that like that there was a lineage that included 
you know, Robin Williams, but right. that's like, that's how he got there. Yes. Yeah. Somehow what I'm doing here in San Francisco right. at an open mic in a fucking laundromat on a Thursday night, <laughs> doing, you know, waiting around for three hours to perform in front of the same 12 comedians I've seen perform. <laughs> it somehow has a through line to like my own show on Comedy Central. It fucking like, did though. It did. Holy and, shit. But, but you didn't know you I, were, I, was it therapy for you? Why were you doing it? I don't know what it was about. I was really, I've always been a creative person and I've, and I was always searching for my kind of way in that way in that world i was a, always a writer i always considered myself a writer hmm. even when i was a little kid i used to write stories and in, in school where i would take all the characters in the class and i would like make fun of them all and every, hmm. to the delight of of the 75 percent of them yeah uh, not to the ones that i made fun of but yeah. uh and then i was doing acting and i was kind of just like I, I just loved enjoying my, I, mean, I think I'm like you in that way. I really loved pleasure. Right. And I, so I, you right. know, I did raves for a long time and that took up a lot of my life. And right. I, I did, I mean, when I was young, this is all very young. It's not a lot of my life, but a lot of my young life, I wasn't fueled by passion. I was fueled by uh, a good feeling. Hmm. And so I did, I was a big time rave guy, rave promoter, DJ. And then I really got into AA for a long time. Hmm. It was a, like almost, I would say not even almost, I would say it was a religious you know, a, a religious fervor that I was in AA for such a long time with a kind of zeal that you only see in right. really religious people. Yeah. And then I finally like found this weird amalgam of like, I was studying acting and then I was still, and I started doing playwriting in community college. And then my friend, Chelsea Peretti, who's a very successful famous yeah. comic yeah, no. who I grew up with. Oh, you grew um, up with her. I, I grew know. up with her in Oakland. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she was doing comedy when I went to New York on this uh, this uh, trip, this vacation to New York. She was doing stand-up, and I was doing I was doing playwriting, and I was doing acting, and she was doing stand-up, and she brought me to an open mic that she was doing, or maybe it was a, a better than an open mic. And I looked at her and was like, "Oh, I, this could be the kind of mixture of the two things, you know, mm. performing right. and writing." And right. so then she was coming to San Francisco that that summer. And I said to her, I will write five minutes of material. And by the time you get to San Francisco, I'll have five minutes and maybe you can take me to an open mic. Yeah. She did. We went. And then, you know, like I said, the rest is, is, a, is a career. Wow. Now my CV looks like big gaps. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, your CV at least is it's going in a direction, That's you true. know, it's, it's, yeah. you know, and now you're, you're on the boat. You're good. I'm on the, I'm on the, the jet, the liner that is sinking. <laughs> the Trump is changing the direction of, you know, what really sucks is that that little monologue that you just did there is the perfect beginning to this podcast. Well, you can edit. But then we didn't talk about those things. But like all those things, like that, I would love to talk to you about that AA stuff. I'd love to talk to you about your early career, all that. Um, but I know I showed up late, and I know you got something happening. So just well, we can, tell me. We can go till we're done. But well, we'll never be done. That's true. It's like Yates said: a poem is never finished; it's merely abandoned. <laughs> so, I was just going to quote Yates. <laughs> that was what I was going to do. That's how I try to end. That's all what podcasts. I do. That's what I do. No, what's what's your time situation? Uh, the, my hike date is running late, so yeah, yeah, we can talk for. All a right. Well, bit. you just you know to put do a point to your watch or. Yeah, Fart really loudly, or do whatever you I'll need point to do. To my fart. Um, so AA was a big part of my life. So you consider how are is is alcoholism a disease for you, or is it a, an absence of meaning in one's life, or how do you? I will say that see I it? no longer know what alcoholism is or isn't. Hmm. I don't believe in a disease model at all anymore. Really, I don't consider myself a member of AA anymore. 
at all. So you're an apostate. I am not an angry apostate. I am mm -hmm. a grateful apostate. It worked for you. I am alive, and I was not on track for that to be Was true. alcohol your issue or my other issue drugs? Was, I truly believe at this point with my hindsight of my age that my issue was adolescence or extreme adolescence. Were you angry? I was an extreme angry case of like, I, I was diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder and depression and, uh, and ADD. And, you know, I had a lot of diagnoses. I was on a lot of medication mm. and I was on a lot of drugs. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not, not true that I had a problem with drugs, but if you looked at me at that age, you, your first thought wouldn't be, whoa, what a drug addicted child. I would have thought that you would have thought that because of the years of conditioning in AA, mm. but really you as a man looking at me as a boy would have thought this is just a really fucked up kid. Mm. Um, and so I, Found my what, what fucked you up, if you know? I don't know. You know, my mother was deaf. My father was an uh, Orthodox Jew. My mother was an atheist, a uh, hippie, and I was raised between those two worlds. How the fuck did they get together? They were not. The, uh, my father was not religious when they, when they got together. Oh. And they split. And oh. as my parents split, my dad got more religious. Oh. And by the time... He won visitation rights to see me. He was living as a like really ultra orthodox Jew. So it was an angry separation. They had a terrible separation, oh. and so I would spend six weeks a year, uh, a, a pretend orthodox Jew in New York with a deaf dad who barely knew what was going on in orthodox Judaism himself because of the uh, information gap. Because right. he was deaf, he was a smart guy, but he just right. you know there's a there's a a lot to the barrier hear. to entry for yeah. sure. That's one of the biggest issues with Orthodox Judaism is there's an extreme linguistic barrier to entry. Huh. So it's a wonder that some that people ever become Orthodox Jews because it's like yeah. it's hard to even figure out what's going on. Um, even from within, well, he was he a practicing Jew before he became he, Orthodox. He had, his grandparents, all my gra my great grandparents, were all Hasidic Jews, like oh, okay. Yiddish speaking. And my my grandmother, my father's mother, was a the, the upstart of the family who was an American Communist Party member and oh. civil rights activist and all this stuff. So hung out with the Rosenbergs, probably kind of a thing. Yeah, um, and then. But I was just an angry kid, you know? I yeah. raised on welfare, we were very poor, two deaf parents. I don't know what it was. Jews on welfare. Do you have siblings? Um, I have one brother, yeah. Older? He's an older brother. And I actually have a half-brother and half-sister and a stepsister, but I didn't grow up with them. Mm. But my big brother's, an, you know, he's a rabbi. Do you know that? No. My, my older brother's an Orthodox rabbi, but in the most cool, chill way. Really? Really. I'm not That's being sarcastic. Cool. That's it great. sounded sarcastic, but, like, you would be able to have him, easily have him on your show and talk, right. take him wherever you want. I'd love to. Oh, I'm sure he would love to. I'd love to if but he's into it. He's a, uh, very, he's a, of a stream of Orthodoxy called Old. He he pr really doesn't identify with anything anymore. I don't even know how. I have no idea if he even fully considers himself Orthodox anymore. I think he does. He does, but he went to a a seminary that is known as Open Orthodoxy. So it's like the most progressive form of Orthodox Judaism. But uh, anyway, that's what happened to him, and right. I went the other direction. Right. You know, um, and was just like a real behavioral nightmare. Yeah. And found my way out of that nightmare through twelve step stuff. Brain, brainwashing, probably. How old were you when you entered it? Fifteen. Oh, really? Yeah, like a kid. Through court order? Or? Through rehab, yeah. Uh -huh. I went to rehab when I was like 13 and 14 and 15. I went to like a bunch of different rehabs. And that You know, I, when I hear about 13, 14-year-olds with drug problems, 
I kind of feel like it's redundant. Because uh, yeah. 13, 14, you're already hallucinating. I know. I often say when I talk about taking acid at that age, which I did a lot, it's like it's so funny to take mind-expanding drugs at an age where you have no mind upon which to expand. <laughs> you know, it's like, or it's already expanding so rapidly, right. naturally. You know, I mean, I was in a mystical state until my well, until well, I still am, I guess. Yeah. But I mean, it. I, I sort of what I've been doing with hallucinogens is trying to maintain the mystical state that I was in naturally uh -huh. through my teenage years, right. you know, in childhood. I've been thinking a lot about how how slow time is when you're young and like how fast it is when you get older and maybe, yeah. maybe psychedelics are the way because psychedelics have that that um that quality of making time kind of feel endless you know yeah. like yeah. when you're having a bad trip especially you're like eight hours becomes an eternity you yeah. know of your trip and i, I miss psychedelics is it still and i haven't done them in 2020 so you haven't done them as an adult since the, the aa thing no yeah, I'm not that, a member of AA. So that's a I shame because you you didn't really experience that. I know. Because the whole point of hallucinogens, from my perspective, is is to break down the normalcy, you yes. know. And but you hadn't attained the normalcy uh, yet, yeah. you know. It's a it's a different trajectory. I thought a lot about this when I was a more active member of AA. It's a very different trajectory. The the adolescent who goes to AA and gets sober than it is the adult. And there are positives and negatives, right? It's like the, the the adolescent. What they do is they have no they have no life built up. When the life falls apart, it falls apart very quickly and very hard because there's no there's nothing there to there's no artifice of of life. That there's you no divorce down. to have and job exactly. to lose. There, the and car to wreck. Exactly. Yeah. You just like are like oh, I'm at rock bottom and it was it's been six months. Yeah. So. That's that can be bad because you can very quickly become in a lot of trouble. Now, it can also be very good because by the time if you decide to start getting your shit together, you don't really have a wake of consequences behind you. Right. When you're an older person that gets sober, it's probably at the tail end of a lot of hurt feelings and a lot of broken relationships and legal and, issues and health issues yeah, and health all this issues, stuff. Yeah. On the other hand, the existential crisis of being a young person that gets sober. I mean, existential crises aren't that, that huge of a deal, but they, they are real. And you either have to suspend disbelief and say, oh, yeah, no, I was a, like a hardcore alcoholic. And it's like, oh, no, no, I wasn't in adolescent phase. I, at 15, I was like a dyed-in-the-wool wino. You either have to say that to yourself all the time. Right. Or you have to face the reality like, oh, I don't know what it was. I don't know. And then if you decide you want to start again, you have to also face the reality of the dice that you're rolling. Because maybe you were. You just never know. Or maybe you probably weren't. I, at this point in my life, I, I believe that the truth is that I am not. And in uh, whatever. I, I, I don't even know if I believe in an inherence to drug addiction and alcoholism like I did when I was an idiot. I actually, I'm pretty sure I don't believe in that. But I do yeah. believe that anybody who has had an issue with drugs and alcohol knows that they are a person who can have an issue with drugs and alcohol. And right. that is to say, I am at least uh, certain that I am a person for whom drugs and alcohol at some point became habituated. Right. Even though that was when I was young, I could, I do feel like I'm not the same person, yeah. but I just, there's no way to know without just saying, let's see what happens. Uh, an older person doesn't, I think, have that issue as much because I think they can go, you know what? I have a lot of evidence in the can. I can kind of 
I understand who I am and what I am. Right. For me, as a person that got sober very young, I'm very grateful for it because I was very much on the track of very quick, quick, like rock bottom badness, locked up, mental hospitals, rehabs, arrests, violence, a lot of very bad shit when I was young. Yeah. Uh, and thank God I didn't have to deal with that stuff. I got to go to raves and Burning Man and AA my whole adolescence and had this great life that led to me being a comedic uh, mind. And Yeah. But now I'm 37 and I'm yeah. married and I'm a grown up and I'm like, right. talk about this a lot, but it is a great issue of fascination for me. It's like, you know, am I the thing that I was told I am or am I something different? And there's only way to, one way, I mean, I know that I am the things that I know that I am. Yeah. But the unknown is the part that I sort of. Yeah. Are you familiar with the, the Native American concept of the closing of the hoop? No. You ever heard of that? It's um, the idea is that when a child's born, like imagine a child's like a, a line sort of, and the line curves as the child grows and it, mm -hmm. it's turn, it's closing, turning into a circle, right? But as long as that circle is open, the child is vulnerable because they don't really know who they are. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can take a 13 year old kid and tell her she's an ugly, horrible little right. creep and that'll you get in her, you know, yeah. it'll hurt her. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the moment of maturity is when the hoop closes, the yeah. circle closes. And from that moment on, it's just like a, a an expanding ripple on a pond, right? Uh -huh. It just gets bigger and, and opens out. But at that moment, when the hoop is closed, then nobody can you are who you are uh -huh. and now you're just going to grow older and bigger and have more experience but now you are you yeah and so in most native american cultures you have a naming ceremony you have a new name you have a new identity you leave behind the identity of the child it's yeah. over that life is over and now there's this new life so it's kind of a born again thing you sure. know in the native american sense my favorite example is geronimo the great apache uh war chief his childhood name was fat boy mm -hmm. <laughs> right so he's fat boy kind of geronimo. a geronimo right <laughs> sure. so so it's a great thing because it's a way of sort of shedding a skin uh-huh um you know it's like you know i always say like when i learned to drive the car i learned to drive with is just was just beat to shit yeah you know but then when i was 22 i got a new car and i never wrecked it i've never yeah. wrecked a car since then you know um so i think there's this sense at least in those traditions that nobody is who they were when they were 14 or 15 right right and in my case i feel like my hoop closed you know in the native american traditions it's associated with puberty generally and you know and also they there's a lot of fasting and vision quests and all that associated with it but for me it was probably in university you know mm -hmm. and and around the time i started using hallucinogens and that's when I became me, and now I'm just an older version of that guy. Yeah. But I'm certainly not who I was when I was 14 or 15 yeah. or whatever. Nor am I. And I don't feel yeah. ruled. I, you, for many years, one of the things that AA does in a bad way, and I'm, like I said, I am pretty grateful for it, uh, but one of the things it does in a bad way is it keeps you very, very connected. And this is one of the main critiques of AA, yeah. is that it keeps you very connected uh, to the worst, the right. worst iteration of yourself. Right. And they claim in AA that that's a very positive thing. It's an empowering thing. Because it's protective in some way. Yeah, the, yeah. and it's reality-based or whatever. Right. Uh, you know, uh, Ram Das had a thing to say about that. It's like, uh, you know, when a person gets into AA, they're addicted, so then they go to 12 steps. He didn't say AA by name, but he's like, then they get 
they just get addicted to being addicted. They're right. I'm, a, I'm an addict. I'm an addict. I'm an right. addict. And it becomes this like loop. Is like I am this thing. I am yeah. this thing. Well, and that ritualistic, you know, hi, my name's Chris, and I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. Like every time, you have to stand up and reinforce that identity. So that very thing started to really wear on me. Not even the identity part, but just this idea. Have you been to a meeting? I went to one. Yeah, when I was in grad school, we were assigned to go. You were only at one. You might not. There's some. Currents. It was in Oakland, by the oh, way. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. There's some currents under the current where you start to hear these themes and one of them is this thing where there's a lot of, it's, a bo- it's both excusing unacceptable behavior and also anthropomorphizing like de- deviance as like, it's my alcoholic brain to uh, talk of that. My alcoholic brain. Like, it's like you're it, possessed. Yes, and it becomes like extended mm. out into things that are like inane and innocuous. Like, mm. oh yeah, man, you know, I'm driving to drive, a guy cuts me off like, and I just fucking lose it. That's my alcoholic brain. It's like, no. That's your asshole brain. You're an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're, and I'm an asshole too, but like, yeah. what do you, do you imagine that the non-alcoholics in their cars are like passively Go a, ahead, sir. Like, zen. I don't drink. Yeah. Yeah. The whole of ra- uh, road rage, that whole phenomenon is like from alcohol. It's just yeah. none of it makes sense. Yeah. And I, I got tired of thinking of my brain as broken and diseased yeah. and ill. Yeah. Even though I am comfortable with the notion that everybody's brains are in some weird, everybody's a broken vessel. You right. know? Every, uh, right. like, it's not that I was like, I'm the shit, but it was this, uh, yeah, like you say, like creating this demon that I didn't necessarily know if I believed in anymore. Um, and going back to that place of diseased mind, diseased, like damaged brain. Right. It just didn't resonate with me anymore. It stopped resonating with me. And then once something stops resonating with you in a, in a, a system, an enclosed thought system, like religion or like a 12-step group, it stops, uh, you stop being able to be very useful. Right. You know, you can't really, you can't really Bible thump if you're like, I'm not sure about the Bible anymore. Right. So that's when I started like my slow exit. Right. Uh, You're not, you're not a very good sponsor if you don't believe it. And I started to realize that about myself. It was like, you know, part of the, the sponsorship thing. And by the way, no one's ever been, I was a, an upstart and an unusual thinker in AA. I was like a Thomas Aquinas or something, but I was definitely <laughs> like, I was as, I was as an evangelical member of it as you could know huh. in my weird way. Right. Uh, but yeah, part of the sponsorship ritual is you sit and you read the, the big book, the Alcoholics Anonymous book with the sponsee and you tell them how these things are true and I'm just reading it and I'm thinking, I'm not believing any of this shit. Really? I mean, I believe some of it, some of the, some of the more like big concepts are really still have in my life it's very interesting like what kind of mind do you have that like you become total believer and yet as you mature you still have the presence and i don't know if it's dignity or what the word for it is to question the very foundation of the thing that you believe in and the thing that you identify yourself as. I mean, that's a very well, sometimes difficult person to be. Well, you know, I, um, I, well, I have two answers to that. One is, um, that I think it's as a result of the spiritual work I did in AA that made me leave AA eventually. Ah, um, cause I, it, it is very truth based, right? It yeah. is very much about don't fucking lie to yourself, Yes, but still believe the shit we're telling you. Yeah. It, that's it's, weird feedback yeah. but um i i had this issue in aa or just in life where i became such a high and mighty member of the program that i got i started to engage, engage indulgent judgment 
over my fellows, you know, because uh, I, I, my shit didn't stink, you know. So I would judge you for the way that you were behaving. And again, I wasn't like a, a square. I was like, like I said, I'm this upstart rave promoter guy, but I'm still like, I'm living according to rules that I think are important. And so if I notice you like, you know, if you parked in a self-serve parking lot, I remember this is a specific example, like one of these self-serve parking lots where you put the money in and you decided not to pay, I would always make sure that you knew that it was not okay. Hmm. Like, it's not my fucking business. Right. Why I think it's my business, what you do, and your relationship with honesty, I don't know. But I would always, that example times a million, I would always be like, that's, it costs money to park here, you know, whatever. Uh-huh. So it, it reached its nadir where my best friend who I grew up with had started dating this girl in AA who was like not very long sober. And it was his girlfriend. And I found out and I was like, why didn't you tell me? And he was like, well, I didn't tell you because I was afraid of what you would say. And I thought at that moment, like when your best friend doesn't tell you they're in a relationship, you've probably gone a bit too far on the judgment tip, you know? Mm-hmm. So... I found this sponsor in AA who was a very weird, abstract thinker, very much more Eastern kind of Taoist philosophy of 12-step stuff. And basically we started working on this concept of like non-judgment and divorcing myself from that. And so he posed this idea of like, what would it be like if you stopped commenting on other people's behavior altogether? Right. And I panicked. I, my initial reaction was like a panic reaction, which was very interesting. It's like you were addicted to judging. <laughs> yes, exactly yeah. right. And I, I thought that was really interesting. So I had this like weird evolution that I, I love to think about because it was really cool. Like it started off that I would, I would judge, I would say the judgmental thing. Uh, and then I would say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. My mistake. Then the next stage was I would not say the judgmental thing, but I would like be fucking biting my tongue. Then the next step was um, I would not be saying the judgmental thing, not biting my tongue, but knowing that you were fucking up Uh, and just being like, well, that's the way that it is. And then the final step was I no longer noticed or cared that you were fucking up because I realized this isn't my business. Liberation. Liberation. Yeah. Yeah. That unraveling of liber- of mental liberation i do believe continued until i finally like unraveled the string around the part of me that was connected to aa in general it was like right. if i can have this kind of laissez-faire attitude about your behavior and the things that you believe then maybe i should look at my own belief system and without judging without attachment mm. and just say uh, you know, what's real? What do I really believe? And eventually it kind of sputtered out into like, Oh, I don't believe this stuff. A lot of this anymore. Right. Well, and fair enough, you don't need to. Yeah. That's totally, that's right. There's a, there's a sort of contextual necessity to some beliefs, you know, that come and go. And, and I would, I would always, if a person was asking me saying, I need to get sober, I'm lonely and I need help. I would, absolutely recommend that person go to AA because it's, right. it's very useful and very beautiful. Right. It's a very beautiful system. It just has some things in it that for me became fatal flaws yeah. after a while. Yeah. But the other thing that I think might have led to it is comedy. Well, I was going to ask how this journey was reflected in your comedy career because the whole time you're doing comedy, right? You're doing stand-up. That's right. Well, not the whole time, but yeah, at, at about the midpoint in 15 years ago or so I started comedy and I was I, early 20s you said yeah early 20s. 20. I do think that there is something about comedy this is the less spiritual liberation version although maybe it's all the same thing 
there's something about comedy that is innately deconstructive you right know? and uh, you slash away the bullshit that's that's what i was going to say there's that same sort of um defiant insistence on honesty yeah that's right yeah, yeah. and 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 also find it and Beyond that, I used to do a bit about this, which is like the innate position. I never said innate position during the bit because that's uh, <laughs> that, less relatable. That but the, would alienate your audience. Yeah, yeah. The default position of comedy is you are to look at the world, examine the world, and zoom in on the parts that are stupid, absurd, artificial, bullshit, and then comment on them. Right. And the joke goes, you know, you look at the world, find the parts that are bullshit, artificial, you turn them into a joke, tell it to the people, they laugh, you cry, that's the agreement, right? <laughs> and over time it turns you into a worse person. By having that kind of shit-colored lens on the world, you will become a worse, more cynical person. For example, now we're in straight-up materials. Uh -huh. For example, when I first started comedy, true story, first started comedy, I didn't like Holocaust jokes. I found them offensive. I found them, uh, I found them distasteful. I didn't find them funny, you know, fast forward five Lost years. Lost opportunity. I guess so. Yeah. But it's true. <laughs> it really is true. Yeah. Fast forward five years. I made my TV Comedy Central debut doing a Holocaust joke on TV. So you see, I've come a long way. Fast forward five more years. I systematically exterminated my entire family. So, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Moving from Anne Frank jokes to, uh, you know, sending in her name. Yeah. Is there anything that offends you at this point? Is there anything offensive? Oh, uh, I think that's the wrong question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, unfunny things offend me. Unfunny. Right. So mm -hmm. it, it's not that it's offensive subject matter. It's just that the delivery sucks and it, you're just doing it for shock value or. Yeah. I mean, look, I will find, um, I find any, it's hard to describe. I'm a, I'm a person who is a political progressive. I care deeply about the left and political righteousness and, and being fair to people. Yeah. But I am also primarily and more than anything else. I'm a comedian and funny is the most important thing. <laughs> That's all that I so care. So comedy first, justice second. Well, no. I mean, look. It's Bill Maher once said. Bill Maher, a person who everybody on the extreme left hates right now, um, once said, anything that is bad for me yeah. as a comedian is good for me as a citizen. Right. And so I really do believe that. Like, yeah. it's not a suspension of disbelief. It's They're both true. It's like... I have political values and like, you know, for example, faggot, the word faggot, right. when I started comedy was a word that I could use in my act and it would, I always used it in the right way, quote unquote, right? Like I was always like, when I said the word, it was always like maybe somebody screaming it at me in a homophobic way or maybe, or maybe me ironically describing myself in that way, in this way that would belie an expectation, right? right? But it was an effective comedy word, right? right? And over time, um, that word is no longer it no longer is effective as a comedy word because it has been rightfully so a light has been shined on that word like it doesn't even matter if it's a, if you're saying it in the right way just you saying it has the power to suck the air out of the room right. it is a word that i no longer am really capable of using in my comedy huh. now uh, that's too bad for my act but it's definitely really good for the world that the that the that the tides have changed about that that word and that you can't just throw it out willy-nilly and think like no man words don't have any power there's no charge behind that word so in that way like I'm I'm good with that yeah. I'm, I'm good that I have had that tool stripped away from me comedically because now I feel it's a lot more likely that there's a kid in junior high who is gonna call his like friend a faggot for buying a pink backpack who will think now oh i don't really think we can i don't right. i can't say that anymore. yeah maybe now i'll just say like your backpack looks dumb yeah and they, maybe someday we won't even say that you know what i mean yeah yeah but uh no i don't find yeah, any yeah. joke that is effective and funny uh truly offensive i guess yeah it's, a, it's hard to be a, i mean the holocaust stuff is tough 
You know, abortion jokes I've are heard tough. Some great abortion jokes and some yeah. great Holocaust jokes. Do you remember dead baby jokes? Sure. Were you in school? I mean, oh, I, yeah. I don't know because I'm older than you, but I remember when I was, I don't know, fifth, sixth grade, like this wave of dead baby oh, jokes yeah. swept through the school. Yeah, generations come and go, Chris, but dead babies are forever. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember those jokes. No, I, I honestly, Holocaust jokes don't, don't, do not offend me. Yeah. I, 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 and anti Semitic jokes don't offend me. I mean, the only. Thing that offends me are things that perpetuate and and support and bolster systems of uh, of, of of oppression and right. ignorance. Right. And so, if the joke, as it always should be, mm. is to point at the absurdity right. of anti-Semitic it's an acid imagery, that corrodes the structure. Exactly. Yeah. I make yeah. a lot of anti-Semitic jokes in my act about you know that are tongue-in-cheek jokes about you know I mean the bad version is like well and as you all know I, mean, I have one as you all know. The one that I did earlier about Jews fucking a big ball of gold. Right? Right, right. I'm not saying that was the greatest joke that's ever been made, <laughs> but I was on the fly there. Right? right. To me, there's great power in making that joke. Because yeah. What you're really saying is how fucking stupid are these people? Right. Who think these like stereotypes. Yeah. They yeah. think that Jews somehow have a relationship with like right. a, a metal, a metal because it's valuable. Right. right. How dumb we could. But you can. It. You're Jewish. You've got like the Jewish cred, street yes. cred. If I make anti-semitic jokes it better be good it better be really good that's what i always say yeah. about rape jokes about racist jokes about all of those jokes is like if you want to do a rape joke or you know really offensive joke a slavery joke straight white guys it, have it really hard yeah, it's we always have it, it's it the better, deck is stacked against them. but my point is it better be the best fucking joke you ever you ever wrote because it better be good enough for you to supersede the immediate yeah. reaction of who the fuck are you to tell that joke it's right. got to be that good right and the problem is a lot of times it isn't but you yeah. know you see anthony jeselnik you know it's like he's telling these fucking horrifying jokes but he's one of the best joke writers in comedy so people now, I'm not saying no one's ever been offended, yeah. but by and large, the crowd is the greatest comedy experience you would ever have, which you can't have anymore, is watching Patrice O'Neill yeah. uh, perform at the Punchline in San Francisco yeah. because he was a, a crazy misogynist. I mean, yeah. it was like beyond belief, but he was such a good comedian. He was such an effective, he was so funny that you would have these fucking women in San Francisco who clearly were like educated feminists. Who would be some of them would walk yeah but the ones that wouldn't walk you could see them really reluctantly and angrily going like fuck and they just start laughing yeah. you know that's yeah. the last thing they wanted but they couldn't deny that yeah that. He, he uncovered some very interesting truths about <laughs> male female i was on the podcast that's done by his sort of protege uh-huh. uh dante nero i don't know if you remember oh, i'm not sure they did a thing together called the beige philip show uh-huh. before patrice died and uh-huh. then he continued it and yeah it's it's an interesting world because i went on that show and he was like He's like, you know, the master, you know, he was describing me as this like grand wizard of like, you know, understanding male female interaction and all that. And then he started laying out some of this like, you know, bitches be host kind of stuff. And I was (laughs) like, did you really read my book? I don't know, man. I don't know. Hey, listen, we've we've been going an hour and a half. I know you got shit going on. So so let's wrap it up. Let's do it again. Thank you, man. This was effortless. This was like sliding down a fucking hill on a toboggan. Well, I I always love talking to you, man. You're one of the people in my life that I'm so grateful to ever anytime, whether it's recorded or not, that we can let me tell you I love you so much, Moshe, that I moved to LA to be close. Closer to you. <laughs> well, good. Let's stay close. <laughs> Thanks, man. 
I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through Amazon.com or you know someone who does. Please direct them through the link on my page, chrisryanphd.com. You click on that baby once, bookmark the landing page on Amazon, and then 8 to 10% of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, Thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those T-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can because... Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation
it's a big deal if you wanna be free. Say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.